Good morning. It's a joy to be with you today, and I send greetings from the saints at Redeemer Reformed Baptist Church in San Bernardino, Redlands area of Southern California. My congregation is praying for you today, and I'd appreciate if you'd continue to pray for us as well. It was a joy to be able to share with you briefly in Sunday school this morning in the prayer meeting time, and let us turn our attention now to the preaching of God's Word. And I invite you to open your Bibles again to the book of Hebrews and the 12th chapter. Pastor Lynn read the first 13 verses for us this morning. I'm going to be preaching on verses 12 and 13 in particular, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. Let us hear again God's word. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the privilege this morning to hear your word, and we would ask now for the work of your Holy Spirit that he would guide us into all truth, that he would help us to understand the meaning of this text and to apply it to our own lives in such a way that the Lord Jesus Christ is honored and glorified in all that we do. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer depicts the Christian life and our participation in this life as a race that is to be run. For like a race in which runners compete for a prize, you and I are called to run and through endurance to press on to the end of our earthly course. Only our purpose is not to compete against one another, but to exercise with great diligence our callings as Christians and to keep constantly looking forward to Jesus Christ, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. For the race that we are called to run is not an easy race. It is not an easy race. In fact, it is a race that is fraught with many dangers, toils, and snares, as John Newton declared in his great hymn, Amazing Grace. And yet the one who calls us to this race, the one who sustains us throughout the course of this race, has promised us his grace. And we receive his grace as God has revealed in the early parts of this chapter by looking to him, to Christ, by being grateful for what he has preserved us from, and by appreciating, yes, understanding the need for his discipline. For there is grace to be found in every leg of this journey. Every leg. The good times and the difficult times. Every leg is filled with grace. And yet while this grace is free, it does not give us an excuse to be less than spiritually diligent nor does it give us the justification to walk about as though we are too weak or 
as though we are without spiritual courage. But rather, this promise of grace should compel us. This promise of grace should motivate us to greater activity, knowing that God is not only with us during times of trial and times of chastisement, but he is upholding us in them. In fact, John Calvin, in his introductory remarks to this text this morning, wrote the following. He said, after having taught us that God regards our salvation when he chastises us, God then exhorts us to exert ourselves vigorously. To exert ourselves vigorously, not to lie down quietly or passively, for nothing should be more effective in raising us up than the knowledge that God is present with us. Even when he afflicts us and that God is concerned about our spiritual welfare, thus the writer not only reminds us here in Hebrews 12 that we should bear our afflictions with courage, but we should also refrain from becoming weak. We should refrain from becoming spineless or slothful in the performance of our spiritual duties, unquote. And so what our trials and our chastisements should produce in us is not a mindset of weakness or defeat. And let's be honest this morning, sometimes we fall into a mindset of weakness and defeat. But that's not what our trials should produce within us. It should not produce within us an absence of spiritual enthusiasm or a loss of spiritual energy, but rather... Yes, even through our trials, because of God's grace, we should find a renewed commitment to strive even more diligently in the race that God has called us to run for his glory and for our good. For the race cannot be won, the race cannot be finished with joy without spiritual effort, without spiritual grit. And I think the message here in Hebrews chapter 12 is that God's grace produces spiritual grit in the lives of God's people. And yet, what must we do by God's grace if we desire to prevent weariness and faint-heartedness from holding us back or from guiding us off course? Well, it's interesting to note here in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, that the writer exhorts us to commit ourselves to three spiritual exercises. Three spiritual exercises. In fact, the language that the writer uses here conveys the idea of athletic exercises in particular, which would be part of an athlete's regular program for greater or intense competition. For the picture here is that of restoring a runner to a more competitive position. In fact, the, the backdrop here is that a runner has been exhausted because of the race, and now they're being restored to a greater or more intense competition so that he or she can run or compete with greater intensity and agility and endurance. 
For when a runner engages in the right training and is disciplined enough to practice the right kind of exercises, that runner is able to perform at a level above, yes, even far above what he or she could think otherwise. What are these spiritual exercises that God's people are to exercise and to engage in? Well, the writer urges his readers first here in Hebrews 12 and verse 12 to exercise their hands. Notice the passage, verse 12, to exercise their hands. He writes here, therefore, lift your drooping hands. Lift your drooping hands. And needless to say, these words are not to be interpreted literally here, but figuratively. For this reference to their hands here is most likely a a spiritual metaphor for their readiness or their willingness to serve. Their readiness or their willingness to serve. In fact, John Owen, in his very helpful commentary on Hebrews, emphasizes that our hands are the principal means of our service and our spiritual activities. And the placement of our hands reveals how eager we are to employ them. And in most cases, a believer's hands are up and outstretched, moving about freely or engaged in some specific activity. Think about it. With our hands, we pray. Sometimes we lift our hands as we pray. We can reach out to others in need with our hands. We hold up others with our hands who require our support and our loving grip. And yet here in verse 12, the writer describes the hands of his readers, notice this, as drooping, as hanging down, meaning that they were either too weary to raise their hands or they were simply too discouraged or too distraught to keep lifting them up. And I ask you this morning, let's, let's be honest. Can it be possible, can this happen in the lives of God's people when they are continually beset with trials and difficulties in the course of their race that they become too discouraged or too distraught or too weary to lift their hands? Indeed, it can happen. In fact, the challenges that we must overcome in order to run and to compete well can seem overwhelming, overwhelming. And the effort that it takes to serve faithfully in the face of opposition can very often drain us of our service and deplete us of our resolve and even our willpower. We can find that our willpower is far less than what it once was. In fact, spiritual fatigue in one way or another can cause our hands to start hanging down. Spiritual fatigue can cause our hands to begin to droop, as the text says. No doubt the writer of this letter was very wise as a minister of the word and as a shepherd of souls to, to recognize this symptom of spiritual weariness and spiritual discouragement among God's people. 
Because to be very honest with you, some leaders fail to fully take into account the negative and discouraging effects that continual trials can have upon the will and the motivation of God's people. Sometimes leaders respond to the weariness of God's people in the wrong way by constantly chiding and criticizing them for their lack of spiritual motivation and for their lack of service or their lack of activity. And yet, this is really not what the writer is doing here. In fact, when we read these exhortations to engage in certain exercises, we, we should not view them as harsh criticisms or as statements of disgust or disapproval from the writer, but rather his goal here is to encourage his readers to call them back to engaging those exercises that will motivate them, that will reinvigorate them spiritually. And as we have already seen, the writer focuses first on their drooping hands. What does the writer tell his readers to do with their drooping hands? Well, notice his exhortation here in verse 12, to lift them to put forth the energy and the effort to raise them for God's glory and for God's service. For as long as we are lifting our hands in our own strength, and I would add here, as long as we're lifting our own hands for our own self-interest, our hands will surely fall down. Our hands will surely droop down in time. But if we are lifting our hands in worship, if we are lifting our hands in selfless service to Christ and to others and to His glory alone, we will gradually discover, notice I use that language very carefully, gradually discover the strength and the courage that we need to keep them raised and uplifted. For what lifts our hands what keeps them extended in the direction of God's service is not what we do in our own energy, but what Christ does in strengthening and encouraging those who were once discouraged and anxious, and especially those who are spiritually weary and disheartened as a result of opposition and adversity. In fact, most scholars believe that these words here are taken from Isaiah chapter 35. Now allow me to read the first four verses of that chapter in your hearing this morning. For in describing what will happen when God fulfills His promises and restores His full blessings upon the land and upon His people, Isaiah writes the following. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert and Remember what a desert is. A desert, as you know, is a very parched place. The desert shall rejoice and blossom with desert flowers. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it in the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, for they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And then the writer says, Therefore, in view of God's glory, in view of the majesty of our God, strengthen 
the weak hands and make firm the, the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you, deliver you. And so here the prophet Isaiah links the strengthening of weak hands and the firming up of feeble knees, which we'll consider next, by the way, with the realization that God is at work on behalf of his people. For God will come and God will gloriously deliver his people from those struggles and from that continual opposition that so wearies them and disheartens them spiritually. Needless to say, this is what the readers of this epistle to the Hebrews needed to hear for the willingness and the motivation to lift their drooping hands would only come through the assurance that God was at work for them and their efforts to serve him were not in vain. They were not futile, but surely worth the energy it took to exercise and extend their hands in service to God again. And of course, you and I as believers today need to hear and obey this exhortation as well. For it's quite possible that as a result of our struggles, as a result of your struggles and difficulties, your hands have begun have started to droop down as well. And your enthusiasm, your motivation to serve has diminished as your hands has grown more fatigue. And if this is the case with us, if this is the case with you, beloved, we need to heed these words of encouragement. For by doing what the prophet Isaiah instructed God's people to do, to behold our God, to worship our God, to worship our majestic Lord, to rejoice in the faithfulness of His works. We can find fresh strength coming into our hands again. We can find our enthusiasm and our willingness to be useful, renewed and reinvigorated. For the first thing that we begin to exercise when we are encouraged and convinced that God is at work for us and within us is our hands. I would ask you this morning, where are your hands? Where are they placed? Are they drooping by your side? Or are they uplifted in praise to God? Are they extended outward in service to others? Are they being used to carry and to bear the burdens of another? The placement of our hands is very important to our spiritual vitality. Which is why the writer addresses this part of the runner's anatomy, first of all. Interesting, right? A runner, and yet the hands are addressed first. Then secondly, the writer addresses here in verse 12 what his readers needed to do to run with, with greater intensity, to run with greater longevity. And that's something that we're no doubt interested in. We, we want to run the race to the end. We want to be intense and we want to run with vitality. And notice this instruction is to strengthen their weak knees. 
And once again, to consider these words, we should do so in their context. They are figurative words. They are in the context of an athlete's ability to run his or her race most effectively. And they speak to a problem that many runners can encounter, the problem of weak knees. And a runner with weak knees cannot run with intensity. A a runner with weak knees cannot endure very long because a weak knee will eventually begin to buckle when it is placed under extreme pressure. And the knee's inability to absorb the shock and the constant pounding that comes with training and running hard will keep a runner sidelined and unable to focus on the race and the obstacles that lie ahead. And so a weak knee or weak knees collectively cannot be ignored. And by the way, a weak knee or weak knees cannot be concealed if a runner wants to compete well. What does this figure of weak knees here in verse 12 speak to? Well, it likely speaks to any area of our Christian lives where our own spiritual devotion or our own spiritual discipline and fulfilling our spiritual duties is weak or becoming feeble. For when we fail to exercise a muscle or when we fail to exercise some part of our bodies, it grows weaker and weaker over time. And eventually it will no longer hold and sustain the weight that is necessary to function or to perform properly. And therefore, weak knees, or in this specific context, we might say a a weak resolve or a weak commitment to endure well under hardship and difficulty, can hinder our ability to compete with any degree of intensity. If weak knees are not treated, they can worsen. If weak knees are not treated, can make it very difficult to hold up and to sustain any kind of weight at all. And so, in order to run well, these, these believers who are being addressed here in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12 needed to apply God's remedy to their weak knees. To their weak knees. And what was this remedy? Well, the remedy is to strengthen them. To strengthen them. And no doubt... The best means of strengthening weak knees is to exercise them. To exercise them, to slowly but gradually restore and build up whatever strength remains in them. And this process of strengthening weak knees can be very painful and can be very discomforting. In fact, if you've ever gone through any program of physical therapy after a debilitating injury of some kind, then you can understand the process that's being envisioned here. You just don't strengthen weak knees overnight. You strengthen weak knees over time and being committed to a process. Over time and with consistent training and conditioning, 
Weak knees can be restored to a place of strength. And a runner can re-enter the race with the potential of competing well. And of course, in a spiritual sense, this is what we who are suffering from weak knees, weak resolve, or weakened commitment must do to regain a healthy pace in our Christian race. For our weakened knees will not be strengthened on their own. Once again, as I just said, they, they need to be exercised. We, we must, by God's grace, stir up the energy and the, the spiritual resolve that we have by God's grace to begin using them with the goal of slowly regaining, with the goal of slowly restoring the spiritual strength that we once had. In fact, John Owen writes these words. The recovery of this frame or the restoration of our spiritual hands and feet to their former vigor is by stirring up all grace unto its due exercise. By stirring up all grace to its due exercise, which has been diminished or degraded through our sloth or through our own neglect. So John Owen is insightful here in suggesting that maybe the weakened knees is partly because of the fact that we've been slothful, partly because we have neglected these exercises, these spiritual disciplines. And of course, the way that we stir up all grace is by first placing ourselves under the means of grace, right? In fact, when we neglect the means of grace that God has appointed in His Word for our spiritual growth, we do find ourselves being weakened, don't we? We do find our resolve being weakened. We, we do find our commitment to spiritual devotion, our commitment to be diligent, weakened. So we have to stir that up by the grace of God. We have to apply that grace to the strengthening of our faith, our resolve, and our spiritual commitments for only by exercising our knees, spiritually speaking, can we restore, can we recover the strength that we need to run well. And so maybe there are spiritual disciplines in our lives. Maybe there's areas of our spiritual devotion that have grown weak. And like weak knees, they're preventing us from running the race well. And we need to stir up the grace of God. We need to place ourselves under the means of grace, not just the public means of grace, and those are important, but the private means of grace as well, our, our own diverse, devotional prayer lives, our own commitment to service. Only by stirring up these graces, only by slowly and gradually exercising these means can we find our weak knees strengthened. And so not only must we lift up our drooping hands, but we must also strengthen our weak knees. Then, then thirdly, the writer declares here in verse 13 that in order to run our race well, we must make straight paths for our feet. Straight paths for our feet. Now, now what does this involve? Well, commentators are a little divided and yet I think moving in a common direction Matthew Henry suggests that we must choose our path wisely. That's what the writer is suggesting here. Choose your path wisely so as to prevent wandering or wavering. 
John Calvin states that we must walk prudently or wisely so as to constantly keep a straight course in front of us. John Owen insists that this involves walking uprightly in the paths of obedience, not halting, not hesitating to walk in the ways that have clearly been revealed to us in Holy Scripture. In fact, Owen would suggest that sometimes we have this latter problem because we're unwilling to walk in the ways that God has appointed, and so we need to get back on the right path. All of these commitments point to the importance of choosing the right path, staying on the right course as a means that God has appointed for our communion and enjoyment of Him and for our continuance in the race. For if we're not carefully considering our path, if we're not making sure that our path is the wisest and most prudent path for us to be on, we can easily find ourselves in great trouble, or we can find ourselves in the place where we really shouldn't be. And of course, this is why Scripture, and especially the Psalms of the Old Testament, stress the importance of the path that we choose to place our feet upon. For example, the psalmist declares in Psalm 27 and verse 15, Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Or Psalm 119 and verse 35, Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Or Psalm 119 verse 105, that counsels us on how to find the right path. For this verse says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. And so by urging these readers here in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 12 to make their paths straight for their feet, the writer is telling them not only what to exercise, their feet, notice he's moved on to another part of their anatomy, their feet in terms of walking with God. That's what we do as spiritual Christians with our feet. We walk with God. So he's telling us not only that we should walk to God, but where we should walk. And we should walk on straight paths, straight paths. For oftentimes when trials are difficult, we might be tempted to choose the easiest path when the right path forward may be the most difficult path. Or there may be times when we choose the wrong path because our souls are fatigued and our wills are weakened due to striving against forces that exist within and without us. Therefore, if we're not intentional about how we are walking, if we're not deliberate about where we should be walking, we can find ourselves straying from where we should be. And of course, by making these statements here this morning, I'm, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we can take ourselves out of the race or that our ability to finish the race is entirely dependent upon us entirely because it is the grace of God that keeps us in the race. It is the grace of God that ensures that you and I will complete the race. However, what we do, what spiritual exercises we practice, what spiritual exercises we perform during the course of our race 
does have a powerful influence on how well we run and whether we are healed from those things that would hinder us and keep us spiritually injured and lame. Notice that's also a possibility here in the text, that we could remain lame, which would be tragic. For unless we're willing to exercise our hands by lifting them, unless we are willing to exercise our knees by strengthening them, unless we are willing to straighten our path by choosing carefully and wisely where we will be placing our feet, we will surely struggle to finish well. Just as an athlete who is injured will find his or her disability too hard to overcome and the chances of further injury a great possibility. Needless to say, this is why the writer makes his final appeal here at the end of verse 13. Notice this. He makes his final appeal here for these believers to respond so that what is lame will not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. For as long as the runner tries to compete on a limb that is injured, the more and more exposed he or she is to further injury. The more and more a, run a runner tries to perform on an injury, the greater likelihood that what began as a limp or what began as an inability to stand will develop into some far more serious spiritual condition. And so what these believers needed to do, what all of us, I believe, need to do is to be honest this morning about how we're running. How are we running? And to recognize where our own drooping hands and our own weakened knees or our own wayward wanderings may have caused us to lose momentum. It may have caused us to lose our sense of spiritual direction in the race that is now set before us. For there is no reason for us to remain spiritually discouraged. There is no need for any of us to remain spiritually withdrawn as a result of the race and where the race has already taken us. There is no reason to stay in a weakened and wounded state because we've been pushed around by our trials and our difficulties. There's no reason for us to allow ourselves to be distracted from a straight and narrow path, which is always where the Lord's word faithfully directs us. For there is healing. Notice the text. There is healing to be found for the discouraged and weakened and wobbling runner. And its source is the one who stands at the end of our race. The one who bids us to look to him as our ultimate encourager and example. And I urge you this morning to do with earnest what the writer said in verses 1 and 2 of this 12th chapter of Hebrews, and that is to look with great earnest to Jesus. 
He is the source of your spiritual vitality. He is the one to give you the grace to follow through on these spiritual exercises. Who but Jesus has endured the weariness and the heaviness of life's trials and yet pressed on because of the joy set before him? Who but Jesus knows what it is to be weakened and wounded by the arrows of opposition and criticism and yet find tremendous joy in all that God the Father had lovingly appointed for him? Who but Jesus, your master, walked the straight path of spiritual obedience and fulfilled all righteousness for you? Oh, dear runner in the race of faith, do not depend on the strength of your own grip. Do not depend on the stability of your own knees or on the firmness of your own footing. All of those things under time and pressure will fail you. But depend upon Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the fountain of grace, who's called you and who can sustain you through the course of your Christian race. For it is not appropriate, it is not good, it is not encouraging for you to remain with drooping hands and weakened knees and wayward feet. By the grace of God, may we change that today by appropriating through the Spirit's power the truth of God's Word into our own lives and by beginning to lift our hands to the glory of God and the majesty of God in prayer and in service and by exercising our spiritual knees through spiritual devotion and discipline in the means of grace and in the opportunities that God has given us for service, and by carefully contemplating and choosing the path that we take, being careful not to veer off course, being careful about the decisions that we make, that they are biblical and right decisions, and that they are decisions consistent with God's will for our lives. May God give us the strength to understand this truth this morning. May we be strengthened for the race, for there is a race set before us. And brethren, may you and I run well. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word today and we would ask for your mercy and grace as we contemplate what we have heard regarding these texts today. Father, we would freely admit that there are times when our hands are drooping. There are times when our knees are weakened. There are times when we feel lame. There are times when we feel that we've veered off course somehow. We would ask for the grace to understand that those things are not the end for us, that they do not have to be our reality and our truth at all times, but by your grace, we can move beyond that. By your grace, we can know what it is to have uplifted hands. We can know what it is to have strengthened knees. We can know what it is to be on the right and proper path and encouraged along the way. Help us 
to realize the importance of what we're hearing today, to apply it to our own lives, but most importantly, help us to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, for He is the source of all that we need. He is the one who's at the end of the race. He is the one we're running toward. We need so desperately to have a clear vision of Him as provided through the words of Holy Scripture. Help us to see Christ today. Help us to look beyond the difficulties of the race. Help us look beyond our own weaknesses and to look at the strength and the power and the majesty of your Son. For we would ask these things this morning in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.